Now, the interesting thing about these seven types of meditation or these six types of meditation is they use all of your senses and all of your abilities mentally to try to tie all of your energy and all of your being to one focal point. And that focal point, whether you call it Buddha nature or you call it uh, Krishna or you call it cosmic consciousness or you call it universal mind, the whole thing is focused to the same point. And that point, fundamentally, is transcendent to the object addiction or the object consciousness. In other words, the bliss transcends its object and the insight transcends its question, which is a kind of object. So for the bliss type, you're transcending the sensual attachments. And for the uh, inquiring mind, you're transcending the analytical intellect. In other words, you're transcending the conditioned base of your experience. In Buddha Dharma, this is called Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata Garbha. Garbha means womb. And Tathagata means well-gone one. So this is the well-gone one who's gone to the womb of the transcendent experience. In other words, cosmic consciousness. Tathagata Garbha, by and in of itself, has no distinguishing qualities. You can't describe it through the sense bases. You can't describe it or define it through mental properties. The Taoists had a great expression for this. They said, with words it cannot be described, but without words it can't be expressed. So the Tathagata Garbha has no qualities of any kind, including the quality of no qualities. So you don't get caught, <laughs> you don't get caught in the nihilistic view. It does, however, function in two very interesting ways. And one of the ways it functions is it tends to function like a mirror. mirror what they call mirror-like consciousness. And mirror-like consciousness does what? No matter what you put in front of the mirror, what do you get back? Whatever you put into the mirror. So the Tathagata Garbha, the ground of being, Buddha nature, if you want to call it that, reflects what you put in it. If I put the seed of how I look in the mirror then what am I going to get back from the mirror? I'm going to get views and judgments and ideas about how I look. Right? If I look at the mirror as the point of view of what it's made out of, what am I going to get back from the mirror? What a mirror is made out of. So this is very interesting. And this mirror-like quality of the ground of being mind, for lack of a better word, it's very hard to talk about. This mirror-like quality of the ground of being mind is called the alia vijnana the storehouse consciousness. So in other words, whatever goes in is what you're going to get back. If you put a smile into the mirror, what comes back at you? Smile. If you put a frown into the mirror, what comes back at you? What does the mirror own? Nothing. Nothing. Hmm? So there's a very famous Zen saying. starts with the Buddha held up a flower and uh, just held it there. And the only one who understood the teaching at the time was a guy who became the first patriarch of Zen. Bodhidharma, who went to China, brought that teaching into China. And then the fifth patriarch said, okay, I'm dying. It's time to pass on the teaching. And they said, write a poem about your realization. And the abbot wrote, uh, the mind is like a mirror, polish it bright so that no dust can alight. That's a very good thing to say, right? It's a very, very much a a purification statement everybody could benefit 
from uh, practicing in that way. However, it's still got a kind of a clinging to it. The mind is like a mirror, bright, polish it so that no dust can alight. Dust being, clinging, attachment. But fundamentally, the dust is believing that there is an object of any kind, mental, physical, or emotional, that exists inherently. Because objects are reflections in the mirror. What was going to be the sixth patriarch came along and said, where there is no mirror, where can the dust alight? And this is the transcendent realization. So he became the sixth patriarch. And of course, all the crowd stood up and cheered. And they claimed, yay, well done. And they put him on the high chair and gave him the bells and whistles. And everybody thought he was fantastic, right? How many people think this was what happened? No, everybody went nuts and they wanted to kill him. Why? Because the monastery was filled with people who were ambitious, wanted to be the sixth patriarch, wanted to be the top dog, wanted to be the boss, wanted to get all the praise, wanted the money, wanted the bells, wanted the whistle. Not like you you, you don't have any such ambition. Do you? No. Anyway, the, the fifth patriarch told the sixth patriarch, you better get out of town, because otherwise they're going to do yin. Right? So the sixth patriarch went down into southern China and was a shepherd for about five years and over time emerged as a teacher and uh, was at uh, risk of losing his life on a couple occasions. Why do we insist on killing our prophets? We don't really want to know that there's no refuge of any kind to be found in the mirror. Food, clothing, shelter, medicine, marriage, relationships, job, career, family, entertainment, objects of bliss, objects of inquiry. Hmm? Not that these things are wrong. That's not the question. There's nothing wrong with these things. There's just no refuge in them because fundamentally they don't exist inherently. And when I say inherently, it means permanently. And if you look at your ego consciousness, you have a very subtle, perhaps, but a very tenacious belief that you are permanent. <laughs> mm -hmm. You don't really believe, right, at this point, probably, that you are going to die. And if you do think you're going to die, or you have that concept in it, the chances are you believe in some kind of afterlife where you're going to get to hang out <laughs> as me. <laughs> What's the proof of this? Well, the best proof we have is dream. In dream, you have a kind of a feeling that there's a you in it, isn't there? But if you look inside the dream, you never see any real image of you. There's no, you don't really see you doing something. There's a kind of there's a kind of person doing something, but you can't really identify it as you because without the body mirror, without the appearance of the body in the thing, the you concept falls apart. The number one way that we identify ourselves as being us is by over-identification with this body. And when you go into deep sleep, what happens to that? In deep sleep, nobody home. But the texts argue that that deep sleep is still a form of consciousness. 
So from the point of view of your best experience, imagine deep sleep with awareness, but without awareness of an object. Can you put your mind there? Deep sleep, nobody home, no dreaming, but deep sleep with consciousness. Can you do that? Well, that's Buddha nature. Buddha nature is deep sleep with consciousness, but not with self-awareness. This is me. Now, when you go into dream, REM, rapid eye movements, you get all these objects and images appearing. That's the mirror. You know in dream, anything can happen, right? In dream, any kind of object can arise, any kind of image, any kind of feeling, any kind of strange, imagined possibility can happen in dream, right? Does it freak you out? No. Why not? Because it's just a dream. Because it's just a dream. <laughs> in other words, there is no I there to claim ownership of that to be freaked out. So that's the alia. Now let's say the dream gets a little bit more focused and the dream now meets scary things, kind of more focused things. Now there's a kind of I there, isn't there? You think, oh, I am dreaming about a boat on Lake Atitlan. But if you look inside the dream, you'll see that there's no I knowing that it's dreaming about a boat on Lake Atitlan. What happens is after you wake up, you claim possession of that image. I wake up, I go, oh, I dreamt about a boat on Lake Adilan. But you only claim the I after you wake up. Why is that? Because the I consciousness needs to be awake in order to claim the possession to the alia, which it doesn't have in its own. This is very important. Where do we get the idea that there's an I? Well, obviously, there's an experience. You know, that you'd be insane to argue that there was no experience there, but you won't find an eye in it. Once the images start to accumulate and they take on more and more complexity, what is the lens by which the complexity of these images are focused into a storyline? And it's the memory of experiences that create the eye loop. You reflect back on an experience and then another experience, and those two experiences relate to each other, and you reflect back on that, and it's the reflection that creates the I experience. It's like a loop that creates a, a secondary thought. So the I is created out of reflection on previous experience, and then that reflection claims itself as a entity that we call a I or me. Now at this point, you have possession. This is me, I mean, I mean possession, in both senses of the words. Possession in the sense that this is mine, but also you are possessed. You are possessed by that memory or you're possessed by that object to think, I had a hard time. No, you didn't. There's no I to have a hard time. So when it comes to analytical meditation or discriminating meditation, we get to Manjushri. Now with discriminating meditation, you go, what is the object? What's this object? What's that object? Am I drawn to this object? I'm pushed away from this object. This object is scary. This object is friendly. I like this. I don't like that. I like this. I don't like that. And through that process of attachment and clinging, 
what emerges is your particular self-image and your particular identity, which is the source and the essence of all your happiness, but it's also the source and the essence of all your sadness. And if you have happiness, you must have sadness. And if you have sadness, you must have, well, eventually somewhere in there, you might even be happy that you're sad. You know? Some people really get off and being miserable. Why? Do they like being miserable? No. But what are they attached to? They're attached to an eye. And the only thing they know is misery. So they're attached to the misery not because they have to be miserable, but simply because they can't imagine themselves without the misery. Or you have the Pollyanna. You know, the people who are always happy. Because they're attached to the eye that must be happy, otherwise they are they don't exist. So in Manjushri meditation, what we're doing is we're occupying the mind, we're occupying the senses, we're occupying the hands, we're occupying the eye, we're occupying the mouth with mantra, right? In order to keep the mind focused simply on the process of discriminating which object is attracting, which object is repulsing. I don't want to do the mantra. I love the mantra, I'm tired, I'm not tired, hmm? and all you're going to be doing is tracking the object.